Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Why I Make Art, my book based on the Sound and Vision podcast is now available. Many thanks to all those who pre-ordered the book. It's 336 pages filled with quotes by the many artists on this podcast, words of wisdom, Features on 30 artists, some of the guest book artist sketches, color images of the work, an introduction by Rishikesh Hirway of Song Exploder. It's out on Altelier Editions, and it's distributed by Artbook DAP, and it's available on their websites, as well as Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, and other places that you can get books. It's $25, and in my opinion, it's well worth it. You can order a copy today at altelier-editions.com or artbook.com. There's already been an incredible response, and so many of you have sent me messages and saying you've ordered the book, and that some of you have already gotten a copy of it. Thanks so much for that, and uh, if you want to support this podcast and you're really interested in these artists, then uh, pick one up. Thanks so much for the support. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Based out of New Berlin in upstate New York, Golden is an employee-owned company that makes some of the best acrylics, oils, watercolors, and mediums that money can buy. I'm working on new work in the studio now, and from the Golden Gesso to the Golden Matte Medium to the Golden Heavy Body Acrylics, the So Flat Paints, just everything in there is happening with Golden Paint. They make the best paints, with the best pigments. And you can find out for yourself by going to goldenpaints.com or going to your local art store. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Based out of Seattle, Fulcrum makes some of the best coffee you can get. There's subscriptions that you can order online to have their coffee delivered to your door. There's a wide variety of beans and blends, and they make some of the best coffee that you can have. I've been fully caffeinated on Fulcrum for a while now in the studio and doing podcasts. Coffee's my one thing, and Fulcrum really delivers. Uh, check out their website, fulcrumcoffee.com, and you can use the code ALFREDSTUDIO at checkout to get 10% off your order. Spencer Tunick has been documenting the live nude figure in public with photography and video since 1992. Since 1994, he has organized over a hundred temporary site-related installations that encompass dozens, hundreds, or thousands of volunteers, and his photographs are records of these events. He was born in Middletown, Orange County, New York, and attended Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts, and graduated with a BA in photography in 1988. Spencer's temporary site-specific photographic installations have been commissioned by the 25th Biennial de Sao Paulo, Brazil in 2002, the Institut Cultura at Barcelona in 2003, the Saatchi Gallery in 2003, MoCA Cleveland in 2004, the Vienna Kunsthalle in 2008, and Mambo Museum of Modern Art in Bogota in 2016, among others. I spoke with Spencer about working with living people, the threat of arrest, 90s music, photography in the family, and much more. Here's our conversation. But uh, your studio looks nice. 
Yeah, it's uh, I converted an old barn into the the bottom section into uh, mostly negative storage and not really making any work in here, but right, a place to to look at things, to organize over computer and and internet uh, my my works. It, it's a podcast studio. Let's be honest. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, this I is have, where all your podcasts are done out of. I have worked through the pandemic. I I did work on a uh, a project of photographing people using uh, Zoom. Oh, really? In groups, uh, in the Zoom grid, and that was, uh, you know, it was very rewarding because as the world was uh, falling apart. I was continuing to get people together uh, nude over these uh, video video chats and people would get into positions and I would juxtapose individuals against each other from different countries. Uh, sometimes, um, sometimes a person would be posing in Syria with a person in Chile. So I would do diptychs and sometimes group works as well. 25 people, 49 people. What did you have to scroll through the windows? Because <laughs> they only have so many on the screen at one time, right? Right. Uh, we I was able to work with twenty five people at a time, forty nine yeah. people at a time, but it, it, you couldn't go above that. So right. when there were more people on the call, we we yes, I did scroll through a few windows, but uh, it sort of got difficult getting everyone into the right position because when I would scroll to the next window of 49 people, everyone would be in every other awkward out of alignment position that I, I think I had to go back to the first one and uh, go with that one. So it was, God, it was your, difficult. Your work, your work mirrored the complications of day-to-day -day life. It was like a similar transition into complicating, like trying to, keep doing what you're doing the way you're doing it. You know what I mean? I feel like everyone was just thrown into this really, you know, unintuitive way of communicating and gathering, which was such a big transition. Yeah, I think people getting together uh, is what my work's about. And when you can't do that, and when museums and institutions don't have the confidence in getting people together during those times, the everything I, I thought I was I would never do a work again even outdoors because people were distancing outdoors and so uh, uh, a collective an art group in Merida contacted me and asked them if they could team up with me to do these group works and continue my work through the pandemic uh, that group is called Studio 333 and we've for two years we organized over 30 group works and diptychs and it went beautifully and people from doctors posing to nurses to artists in uh, Malaysia posing with someone in Singapore and so everyone really getting together to to uh, a, a communal effort sort of it was their exercise like a lot of people would escape through exercise and meditation online and and the idea of posing with someone, even if it's uh, without clothing, sort of had this connect that someone is connecting 
and being in an artwork as opposed to uh, you know just you know doing an activity that that is uh, for that is a holistic uh, sort of exercise. Yeah, you know what's funny about your work too that I was thinking about is there's thinking about the work and the dynamic between people and groups of people and then the individual and then there's post COVID right? Because that all kind of changed somewhat. Or like you could see these large groups of people, those images feel a lot different in the middle of a pandemic, you know what I mean, than they do like on a normal pre-pandemic day. And um, I was thinking about, you know, the individual, because in that work, everyone's having this individual experience. It's a very collaborative thing that you're doing with these people and they're all having this very specific interesting experience taking this photograph but when you look at it the individual in a way is purged a little bit because it's more about the group it's almost like the people become a texture or they're you know it's almost like when you look out of a plane i I do this every time about the land in new york city it just looks like the sims or something it looks like reality i know down there reality is so you know specific and detailed but when you're up in a plane it just looks like textures and like toy cars and you know you don't see people really so it's interesting like that dynamic that you have between the group and the collective becoming this one texture in the photograph and then all these personalities of all these people having a very interesting experience at the same time yeah most people are in it and feeling you know they want to lift their heads up and see this field of uh yellows and tans and pinks and uh and and I, it's a sort of a a friendly fight to keep their heads down and not enjoy the view and right, sort of right. be in the, the position and the idea that the bodies at a certain point can become this blur or this uh abstraction is uh very prevalent in my early works when i would have the option to uh control the aperture of my lens and I could have more depth of field if I wanted or less and I found that having less would keep the bodies in the front in focus and then in the back they would start to blend into each other and become out of out of focus and then that was uh, very much like an out of focus organism and and so that that was the abstract element of my work, and in a way, it fe- felt very painterly and uh, like a sculpture that I couldn't really wrap my hands around. And in the same way, I would blow out the backgrounds of the uh, city, and so the city wasn't as gritty. You couldn't really touch it. It you couldn't. It you didn't have this comfor- comfortable feeling when looking at it that you sort of owned the photograph you know it was sort of the opposite of uh, a Gursky yeah yeah it's so interesting I mean your your position as a photographer or an artist in relation to the subject it must be it must feel it just must be an interesting perspective because I feel like you are in a in a position that most artists aren't ever in do you know what I mean that's kind of like like in control or not control but overseeing orchestrating this gigantic mass of people and you know it's almost like i think about like oh you know i've taught figure drawing a lot and there's one person 
sometimes if you're lucky, there will be two people and one's a dancer or something and they're holding different positions. And then everyone, when they're drawing that person, it's about that person or that those two people, whatever. Imagine having like 80 people there to draw from. It would totally change the way you approach that drawing and the way you feel about the individual versus the collective. But we just, we don't have the resources really to be able to do that. You know what I mean? You're creating a, a circumstance that just no one really creates right uh i i try you know i i do make a lot of mistakes <laughs> Don't and, <we> all. <laughs> <laughs> and if i see someone in this crowd of people doing something a little bit weird and i ignore it afterwards it'll stick out in the photograph oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and to other people right and there's and it and even if it's not the person, even if it's the background and I'm being overwhelmed with the urgency to get this done, you know, because if it's not the police, it's the city saying I, had a I have to complete the work in a half hour and I need an hour and a half more. And so it, there's always pressure to uh, complete the works. Um, and so if I, if I see some garbage in the background and I do have the time to have someone run in and get it out, I might uh, say, oh, no, don't worry about that. Uh, this is before uh, everyone was really using uh, Photoshop. Uh, and so I would just let it slide, and then I'd be like, oh, why did I do that? But, uh, but as far as bodies, you know, I'm pretty good at looking at a crowd or a landscape and finding what's not quite right uh whether it's someone holding up their hands in a peace sign right or uh, but uh something that w will distract enough to become the center of the photo as opposed to the mass sculpture of people yeah it's almost like an extra in a movie or a tv show is like looking at the camera or something you know wearing <laughs> yeah. some you're doing something to be like hey i'm here and you really have to be keen on that to to race those things because it the suspension of disbelief I feel like will be you know just messed with there and that must be I mean are you comfortable with the notion that that you're in a way I mean you're you're take you're a photographer but you're also in a way a director or you're an orchestrator you know what I mean like because you're collaborating with so many people that's got to be a huge part of the process. Yes, uh, um, you know there are there are artists that uh, work with groups and have other people photograph the groups, whether on video or on uh, with photography. And I, I feel that uh, the combination of uh, my eye in the lens tweaks it enough in the formation of the works, especially since I'm shooting works with an out of focus background. I feel that. Uh, that I'm directing not only the group, but sort of the rectangle. And uh, I'm trying to create something outer-worldly uh, yeah. within this, uh, like a diorama. And, uh, and they're, they're living people, and you have to sort of, uh, <laughs> thank goodness they're living people, and you <laughs> have to sort of work with tact, so you, you know, you kind of... 
don't aggravate uh, a small group of those people and right. sort of keep everyone cheerful and uh, working through the setups. Because I, I just don't only do one setup. I do three or four because I think people don't want to just come, get their clothes off, and then leave. They want to feel like they're part of something uh, that has a continuum. Yeah. And uh, so I work. I try to uh, do a bunch of work so people can have an experience. And in that, bringing people to different locations, there is this uh, definite directorial aspect to the work. But and so. Uh, I try to do that with humor, and um, people see that I'm making mistakes when I'm working because I am, and uh, and then sometimes within those many mistakes, or I, I triumph. Yeah, it's I guess it's uh, just because it's quote unquote art making mistakes are seen differently. Like if you're a movie director, you know, there's how many takes, you know, it's like. And you have the actors failing a take and redoing it, and it's baked into the process. But, I, you know, I would, I mean, anytime you're pulling together that many people to do something, it just seems like it's going to take a while. There's going to be, you know, blips on the radar that you have to try to smooth over. Definitely. My mistakes are actually in public because um, I, uh, a lot of artists have the, the, the luck to be able to uh, not exhibit their works until they're finished. And uh, if I do a work or, or set up that is not quite there, there'll, there'll be documentation of that, that failed setup out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess it would be, you would have to get comfortable with that though, of just basically working in you know like when i'm painting in the studio there's never anyone there you know what i mean it's weird if there's anyone ever in my studio it just feels like voyeuristic or you know it but i have collaborated i've been in a band and i do like that energy you know what i mean it does fuel you in a way there's an excitement to it i mean were you always where does that was the 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 pull to collaborate in that sense strictly um, directed by your vision of pulling people together or do you think you were always kind of like that like as a kid did you want to like pull other kids at the playground or you know bring people together and like work on projects together or were you a loner or were you always one that because a lot of artists are loners you know we get caught in our own world and our heads and you know how do you think you navigated towards that collaborative aspect uh, I think I well, I played basketball as a kid, and uh, that was a very collaborative sport um, and artistic in a way, uh, especially growing up uh, watching Pete Maverick and Dr. J and the great creators. But uh, I went to college uh, at Emerson College for filmmaking, and I realized that I I was daunted by the fact that I had to uh, get a lot of people together to make a project. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, this is too much for me. I have to get a sound person, a camera person, editor, and just the idea of getting eight or nine or ten people together to make a film was, I just didn't want to do do filmmaking. <laughs> and so yeah, I, it's, it's a certain, it takes a certain patience, I think. 
I mean, even when I was in a band, I would always get frustrated because when I wanted to practice, I had to get four other people on board. You know what I mean? And right. had, the stars had to align. But then when I go to my studio, it's me whenever I want, as long as I want. So I really love that. But then after doing, you know, five years after school by myself in my studio, I started thinking, oh, I'd like to collaborate again. And I started right. working with musicians and stuff. You know, the grass is always greener. Yeah, so I, I, I decided that, uh, okay, why don't I take just my dad was a photographer and so was my grandfather and my great-great-grandfather. And I, why don't I, I've always been around cameras, not artistically, so why don't I dabble and take a photography class? And I fell in love with it. And from there, I started photographing individual portraits of uh, nudes and friends and I worked on that for around four years and then slowly I got the confidence up because only because I had too many people that wanted to pose in my individual portraits for me to make everyone happy to accommodate everyone. I felt, okay, let's do it. Let's just get it done with. <laughs> you know, let's just call every, this is before the cell phone, uh, just call everyone up, all my friends up, all the people that I, that wanted to pose for me for individual portraits and just let's all, let's do it. I had scouted the United Nations for a few years and always wanted to do a work in front of the UN, in front of the General Assembly building. And I don't know why I decided to do my first group work there, such a high profile location, but that's, that's what I picked. And so I invited everyone, you know, I did what I should have done in film school for four years prior. Uh, but I invited everyone to uh, participate uh, in this group photograph, and uh, it was it was a wonderful experience. Uh, the police uh, didn't know what to do; they actually diverted traffic and actually helped me make the work. That's well, times have changed. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it amazing like how different. You know, like that building is, by the way, I mean, I was fortunate enough to do like a behind the scenes tour of it. The mm -hmm. artwork in that building is amazing. It's just got an incredible feel to it. And I love out front with all the flags and the, you know, it's just a great building. So well done on that location scouting. I mean, that was a good first <laughs> place to have it. Yeah. And then I brought the people over to, uh, from, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it's on First Avenue, but I brought the people over to the next avenue and did a work where I had people lying in the street between the two or three minute intervals of the red and green traffic lights, right. run into the street and create a wavy line of bodies like a lightning bolt. And then as the cars piled up, un you know, I didn't think they would do that so quickly, but they did, but every, all the cars, since it was a uh, an incline, saw the people posing, and I oh, had the yeah, opportunity yeah. to shoot three frames, and one of them was quite nice, and uh, so I was able to do two works that morning. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Now, I I think I read that. Did your dad work for a company or own a company that makes little those little keychain like picture viewer things? Yeah, my my father. Uh, franchised uh, the keychain viewer uh, hotel photography business in the Catskill Mountains in the 1960s and 70s. Nice. And then I actually would work for him 
in the uh, late 80s and early 90s as a hotel photographer uh, shooting uh, guests as they would enter uh, before they would enter the dining room. So imagine stopping a thousand people, hungry people. Dressed for dinner. (laughs) And just for a photograph before they wanted to eat. And I think I actually was able to not miss more than 10 people. I mean, if a thousand people were coming at me, I would sort of like orchestrate everyone into somehow posing together in family photos before they would go into the dining room to eat. Did you like it? Or was it pressure? Oh, I would... I loved it because uh, I loved the pressure, the challenge of uh, photographing so many people. I loved the spiel, sort of the the language and the wording that I would use to get people to stop and yeah. trying to make people laugh and that, you know, give me a break sort of <laughs> right. attitude. And so then I would photograph them uh, and uh, then we would, uh, I would work with a bunch of other college students or you know, uh, that were also working for my dad. And uh, we would take all the film and I would run the film over to a lab and they would do an E6 process overnight, which is slide film. And then I eventually started doing the E6 process myself. And we would have all these maybe like, you know, 40 rolls of film. And then we would not cut the film and bring them back to my house, my dad, my parents' house. And then we would sit, my family, and sometimes some people would come over and we would punch the film. We would take a metal, like hand punch and punch little, uh, little uh, rectangles out of, uh, out of the film uh, and put them into these plastic half frame viewers. Uh, And then people would purchase these the next morning as they would go into breakfast and they would be hanging on a board with little everyone would hand you a ticket and then that ticket would correlate to their image that was hanging on a board in a keychain by a hook and so there'd be a lot of clanking of plastic when i would hand them their images and they would buy i think one for one for four two for i don't know (laughs) two for seven three for nine and yeah, so, I used to love those things. We yeah. would go to uh, Cedar Point in Ohio. I'm from Pittsburgh, and at the you know at the amusement park, they would have the you know you could have your picture taken, and then you could get these little viewers. And I grew up with like you know Viewmasters. Like I love those things. And why they were so special, even though because a viewer is sort of reminiscent of what we have today. This, you know, images on your iPhone are illuminated from the back and a viewer, when you look through it, you look up into the sun and you see this glowing photograph of yourself and it was intimate and you would have it on your keychain and you would always hold it and share it with people. And, and, uh, my father, when he retired, gave me, uh, I think 75 cameras, half frame cameras. Whoa. And so I have them all lined up in my upstairs uh, on top of my studio. And I started using them for my art very in the sort of the same uh, spontaneous, less spontaneous way, but in the same spirit of like a Warhol Polaroid. And I would photograph friends and, and nudes. And so it was a side series that I did for, that I still do. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's really cool because you, well, first of all, it just, I mean, you were steeped into this medium. You know what I mean? It's not like you had to come to it. 
<laughs> it's almost like it was forced. It sounds like it was forced on you as child labor. Like you just knew, you know, how to do this stuff or work with it. And, yeah. Um, and you moved through, I mean, you know, over the decades now, you've seen for someone who's, you know, dedicated your life to the image and photography, the shift is like monumental on how it works with everyone's lives. But there's still that same um, pull that we have to seeing ourselves or seeing the human, you know what I mean? Like like you said, that illumination is being part of the the draw of those early things. I remember, you know, kaleidoscopes, like those those things you would hold up to your eye and or those little those film viewers were amazing because it was right in your hand and it was a tiny thing, but the distance that it projected was really cool. Like the physical distance in the eye and then the distance conceptually. And I think that's you know, integrated into so much of digital media now too, because it's right there on the screen, but there's this, you know, this distance and I don't, it's, it's interesting how different and how much the same this stuff is, you know? Yeah. You know, when you share a picture that you've taken, uh, when you're standing next to someone on your iPhone and it comes up and it's an image that you've taken that you're proud of. It's sort of that same idea where you would pass a keychain viewer to a friend and it's a private image, whatever it is, uh, whether it's of yourself or your family or something that you've done artistically, and then uh, to share it on such an intimate level. Uh, and then the process of seeing it is sort of magical. Yeah. Uh, and so there's still magic in plastic, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, it's that reveal. I wonder what you must have thought of the first time you encountered, whether it was the media or like you found out about flash mobs. <laughs> yeah, I, I, someone interviewed me and they said that our, he, they called me the grandfather of the, the godfather of the flash mob. Not the, I should be the grandfather. <laughs> the the, give me 10 more years. That's a little ageist. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, so, uh, you know, in my early days, there was always the threat of arrest when doing the group work. So it was always uh, just this underground rush to uh, create an image. I would uh, hand out flyers individually on the streets of New York. I would print around six flyers, uh, six sets of flyers uh, at the beginning of the summer because I, during the winter, I would scout all these locations and say, well, this is where I want to work. And I'm going to, I would check the farmer's almanac for what time sunrise is. And then I would calculate that people should arrive, you know, a half hour before sunrise. And so I would make these beautiful flyers that my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, would design. And I would print a thousand of each. And then I would spend a month handing them out to people on the Lower East Side, Midtown, 23rd Street, sometimes Harlem, but mostly on, on in the East Village and the Lower East Side. And there was definitely a mix of people that I felt comfortable with uh, and enough people that I felt would do it that I, would, I eventually got around 10 or 15% of those 1,000 flyers of people actually showing up. Yeah. Well, those are days, too, where flyers, you know, had some impact you know yeah. like you would go see a band flyer someone would hand out hey these people are playing at this basement show and you'd go to it because you're like oh that's something to do 
Right, that's There's before you... Nothing else to keep you busy, you know what I mean? It was kind yeah. of like, oh, this is cool. This is how you find out about things. I love, too, that there's a certain demographic of listeners who just heard Farmer's Almanac and they have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way to know what time sunrise would be. In, right, uh, the weather. You're like, well, this year it's going to be colder than last year based on chickens or something. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, and for flyers, you know, you know, I, I, I relish still getting a flyer handed out to me on the street, you know, whether it's a half-price falafel or uh, or some... Uh, I don't think bands actually hand out flyers anymore, but it's great. No. You really can uh, pinpoint your audience. For sure, yeah. I used to love the ones where you tear off the little phone numbers and stuff. I mean, those were great. Yeah, definitely. Not really around much anymore, but... Um, so when you're doing, you know, the, these early stages you really had to, it was a little bit of a crapshoot, I imagine, too, because it's not like people are RSVPing online or, you know what I mean? It's, you're just right. kind of hoping, like, things go your way? Well, I did a work on the Brooklyn Bridge, and the piece was titled Connections, and so the flyer itself would have the name Connections on it with minimal type, and not too much information as to they would know exactly what's going to happen because I, I would also think that would be boring for people. Right. And um, I think 69 people showed up. And, you know, if I did the Brooklyn Bridge today, I possibly could fill up the Brooklyn Bridge yeah. with the right organization collaborating. Right. But back then it was a struggle to get 69 people and then I started getting 100 people and then 150 people at different locations until, uh, and then I would start getting uh, stopped by the police and then arrested and then summonsed and then arrested and put behind bars. And so it, it started to get more and more serious as far as I would work on something for a month or a year and then it's just taken away from you very quickly. Right. And uh, it's legal. It was legal for me to do what I was doing. Um, so the city just didn't want to give me permits. Um, and so I was recommended by the, uh, the film department, the Department of Film and Television. To They didn't tell, say directly to me to steal locations, but they, they definitely said, uh, hinted to me that that's what I should continue doing. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. So... A lot of people think it was uh, what I was doing was breaking the law. I, I was actually working within the law, and the uh, the city, the administration, Giuliani, they were breaking the law by denying me permits, and the police were breaking the law by arresting me. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, well, first of all, yeah, I mean, so you have a, a criminal record. <laughs> For just getting people together. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Did, did, did it's not any nefarious, of, you know. Uh, right, right, right. But, but did any of that um, impending danger of it being shut down or, you know, that the kind of, you know, risk factor in it, was that exhilarating at all or was it merely a pain in the ass? Well, at first, uh, there definitely, maybe for half a, half a summer, yeah. There was an, an excitement of trying to get the work done. Uh, my wife gave me a medallion of invisibi invisibility when I, oh, we, started nice. to, <laughs> we started to 
when we started and I started wearing it and I was invisible for a while but then I, I was taken that was uh, ended and I after uh, uh, work was shut down in Central Park and um, I just uh, you know when you work on it just imagine you're in a studio in your studio Brian and that every you know third painting you're the police are going to come down and take that painting. <laughs> you know, yeah, no you know, it's like it <laughs> <laughs> all that work and time and effort, and it just disrupts your your focus of like being able to to you know realize your vision. Exactly, and I'm doing these works really early in the morning. the The city is actually sleeping. I would do them on a Sunday at sunrise or a Saturday at sunrise, and in the summertime especially in the springtime, the, the sun would rise before 6 a.m. Yeah. And so I'm really not disturbing people uh, right. and working within the, the waves of traffic um, and then getting people out of the way of traffic. And so I definitely had a system where no one was getting hurt and people were, you know, feeling good, even though the works took me maybe you know, nine minutes to create or 15 minutes to create, uh, I was still getting what I wanted. Yeah. I wished I had more time, but I, I think I, I was really good at working quick back then. Yeah, well, you'd have to be. I mean, the city loves to, like, the that kind of stuff. They just exhibit or, you know, uh, produce the power, whatever power they have. Like, you know, I deal with it because I help run a, I run a youth soccer club in the permits department for parks and stuff. They would just make everything so difficult, you know, almost on purpose just to complicate things. And it's like, none of this stuff we're trying to do is, is hurting anyone. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's, it's for a positive, but you know, it's just maybe because it's outside the norm or it's seen to be a pain in people's butt that they just want to shut it down, you know, or not have to deal with it. Yeah. I, I always found it interesting is that some of the aides to to Giuliani and the judges would actually pose for me, oh, but really? of course they couldn't tell. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I think uh, there's always like, what could this become, you know? And I think once you let a hundred people allow a hundred people nude in a That's situation, true. yeah, yeah, what happens if a, th a someone wants a thousand people and right right and they didn't want they would sort of wanted to sh shut things down before things got too big and so i was able to uh to get bigger uh, in other countries where the city wasn't where the mayor of the city wasn't trying to arrest me they were actually celebrating the work right what i imagine too i mean just judging on some of the projects you've done is that you were able to be invited to do projects in which there's an infrastructure where they set up a you know a friendly environment for you to do what you need to do as opposed to just going rogue or is it always rogue no uh after um one of my first uh few works were institutions uh inviting me and creating a space and time and manner in which i could work with where i where i could actually concentrate more on the the work less the rush and uh, that was I did a work at Site Santa Fe with Louis Grachos. I did a a work at Art Basel um, with Art Basel in Switzerland, and then I did a work a group show 
I was in a group show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Montreal in 2001, and Vanessa Beecroft was in that show, Maurizio Catalan, and I was able to uh, to uh, just have this moment where uh, the the city just gave me the streets and uh, allowed me to uh, gather, and 2,500 people showed up, and that was incredible because previously in New York only uh, I would it was difficult for me to get a hundred people and so to go from a hundred people to 2,500 it was like pretty incredible and uh, and knowing you know I'm I'm often sort of I have this love-hate relationship with the press but I really wanted people to know about that because I I just wanted one person to know about that I wanted the Giuliani to know about that so here I'm he's trying to arrest me in New York but up in Montreal I'm being allowed to do the work so I kind of wanted the word to get out there for that one that it it was successful well the more you were your work was out in the public realm and people were seeing it and becoming aware of it did it become at all easier or you got a little you know a lenient environment for you to be able to do the things you wanted to do or was it pretty much the same yeah, definitely. I, I was able to um, have the confidence to ask for locations in cities where I was invited that people might not normally ask for. Uh, so I had the ability to uh, divert traffic, you know, not yeah. stop traffic, <laughs> but right, right. <laughs> the city would help if I worked in a specific location, the the curators who are usually the producers of my work like a museum curator would take on the task of not only curating the work but also producing the work so they would work with the police and the city planners and and the government to uh, help me execute this vision that uh was getting bigger and bigger i would i would imagine that um because you make work and then you show work at a gallery or a museum and you produce it, then that has a big part of that equation. Because like, if you look at films, especially in New York City, you know they bring a lot of money to the area. Like, obviously, they it's a it's a huge commercial aspect to it, which you know they facilitate shutting everything down. I mean, I you know if there's something filmed around my apartment, I can't park within like you know ten city blocks of this place, and it's shut down as long as they need it. They're very friendly to film crews. But it sounds like, I mean, maybe that's because they have permits or something, but it doesn't sound like it was that easy for you to to have that environment, you know. But it's essentially a very similar process and thing, you know. If And yours is probably way less invasive than, you know, like a, a movie set. Oh, definitely. I You know, I think it's, you know, when someone thinks of 100 naked people, if it, the city, to them, it sounds like 1,000 people. Right. It's it's not just a hundred people. <laughs> Naked just makes things just crazy. And uh, isn't it funny? It's still like that. <laughs> the human body, people. One of uh, one of your photographs, not to go on a tangent, but it's of a woman. I think it's in London, and she. I think she's had like you know one of her breasts removed. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that is so powerful. You know what I mean? That image and like I don't know the story. But, you know, having someone in the family who's had breast cancer and has gone through 
you know, issues that that photo brought up. I just thought it's so endless how the humans sort of like cover the body or they feel so weird about the human body, the naked human body. And there's certain things that you would just never show people. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing that we just can't sort of get past that. That was a wonderful photograph. And it was the, it was not too cold out, but it looks cold. And uh, the ground is wet from rain that had happened maybe a half hour before. And unfortunately, she's not with us anymore. She eventually, the cancer spread and she passed. But uh, in the spirit of that, I uh, tried to raise some money on uh, Instagram because now you can uh, add a uh, a benef- uh, a charity to your posts right. and raise yeah. money with your images. I, I found I just found that out about that. So every like six or seven images that I post, I'll try to add a charity to the image, and I won't make much. I mean, I don't make it, but the charity maybe I've gotten up to three hundred dollars for a charity. Yeah. So I, I did that with that one, and that was very fulfilling. And uh, and yeah, people. People pose, and uh, at the end of their lives, there are people that are not in my, alive anymore that were in my photographs. I mean, it's like any group work that you know, whether you're a band or you know, or you're working with a crowd, or you're an artist working with a crowd. You know, life extends and time goes on. But I think people have do have a sort of a holistic art experience with participating, and they want that to extend even afterwards after they're finished they want to pose an individual portrait and sometimes i even feel obligated to continue the work even when i'm not finished in a city yeah and um there's a a wonderful cathartic uh, communal uh, experience of people in common uh even even the you know the hippest of the hipsters once they if they can just get around to doing it you know they uh i think their experience of it afterwards would uh, transcend what they thought. Um, but uh, just to see someone like a, I recently did a work in uh, the desert near the Dead Sea, near the city of Arad, and I painted people white uh, using white body paint that resembled uh, uh, sort of a salt. So I turned the people into uh, pillars of salt. And then there was a, a man, must have been in his early 70s, who was walking with uh, walkers and had a difficult time walking across the... We had, we had given everyone sandals to, uh, to use, but still he was just... He would have climbed on t- you know, to the highest mountaintop to do this work. And uh, I... You know, I had assistance there, but I, I just felt there wasn't enough. And so I, I even ran up to help him and sort of yeah. guided him over a, a difficult part. But uh, just to see people of all ages that want to be a part of art, not just like go into a space and view art and feel satisfaction, but just to, to be in it, to be a collaborator is a great, great feeling. Yeah. And, you know, it to the to the point of those portraits, too, it's nice because you know, if people know your work sort of in passing, like, oh, you know, these are these photos of large groups of people and they see it as kind of like, oh, well, that's kind of like a spectacle of like this event, you know, and it's about 
the the production of pulling all these people together and they'd look past the the this conceptual there's a million things that can run through your mind when you look at those photos if they think oh it's just like a spectacle or a performance or whatever and then they can turn and see those portraits which are so powerful in a completely different way you know what i mean because it is that one-to-one the story so it's nice that your work has both aspects like both sides of the coin you know what i mean because you can you can look between it it's just as strong i think in those individual portraits as well and it's really like kind of like human nature you know you have this collective consciousness and we can think about people as a whole doing things and then the individual is always compelling as well you know oh definitely my early works kind of remember remind me of your last show where you would uh work with when you painted facades of like amazon on fire and you would work with signage and uh and so I would always sort of take this individual and juxtapose them against a background that I found compelling. Uh, and so that's why I, I uh, sent you that image when I right. sent you a message. Yeah. And I felt, I feel you're kind of seeing the same thing that I'm seeing uh, in your, at least in your last show, just this idea of uh, the, the landscape as object and, uh, and, so I'm sort of creating uh, sort of a just a small diorama for someone to, uh, when they view the work, to have this intimate out sort of juxtaposition of uh, an experience. So what's so what's that one thing odd about the Amazon painting? Is that you know the, the roof is on fire or your pictures of landscapes, your paintings of landscapes, but in the corner you see, you know, this sort of uh, industrial center. Uh, yeah. I like that. I really, I really yeah. enjoy the city versus nature versus concrete. Thanks. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've always been interested in what our environment says about people. So you can paint a portrait of humans through what we build and what we live in in our environment in a way and I think that's you know and I used to never paint people and then I would always hear about I'm sure as you always hear about naked people right that's like they'll just bring up that in relation to the work you know I always heard that you know oh there's never any people in it never 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 and then after a while of hearing that I went on like a three-year bender and just painted portraits of people that were in my mind I did like 333 portraits of people and um you know, because I think it's about the collective and it, the, you can talk about the individual in talking about, you know, what you don't see or, you know, the absence of the person. So I've always been interested in that dynamic between the two. But I, and I think your, you know, your works, the, the work with the collective, you know, the people on mass, I think really, you know, ask a different kind of question about who we are in our collective action. And, and it's, it's a really compelling question. I think. I was able to get out of, uh, New York in the middle of the, uh, of COVID. And I was commissioned by sky arts in London to make a work. And my idea was to have people wearing masks. At first, I was going to have people wearing their own handmade masks. But then I thought it would be just interesting to uh, have people wear white masks. Because when you're photographing that many people at a distance, the masks 
they wouldn't sort of read as powerful. They would, uh, so I decided to use the 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 white uh, masks. And what happened was um, two. I think we did it on a Sunday, and Monday they passed uh, legislation or uh, rules that uh, you couldn't have more than 10 people gathering. <laughs> so we got away with, uh, but I had a quarantine for 14 days and uh, I made these works in these times. And so I felt like I, I, I did a work that sort of had a connection to uh, where we're at now, but even the works without masks that I did in the past felt very apocalyptic. And with the idea of the numbers and numbers and numbers of people uh, adding up that had passed, you know, sometimes when you see some of my works where the bodies are as if they're sleeping in mass or not, or have no life to them, you, you kind of realize, you know, in, in a, a wake-up kind of way, is this is what uh, you know, death looks like and uh, in our modern times. And so, you know, it's not a black and white photograph that's reminiscent of uh, the Holocaust or it's, it's you know, a color photograph of what catastrophe could be, what natural disaster could be. And uh, yeah, I really, uh, when I look at my works, I really connect the idea that there's, that my semi documentary semi-conceptual works are sort of uh y you know predicting or unpredicting the future yeah no i i totally see that you know it's funny because i koyana skotsky was just a huge movie for me and i feel like it does something similar where it's it's talking it's almost apocalyptic it, it it's almost like showing our demise through you know technology and through you know industrialization but in a way that's like the people in it are just like pieces of the you know there's no sort of individual in it and um yeah my i've always been interested in this kind of flirting with you know the beauty of a post-human world in a way or like the the silence of it and then the the sort of scariness of that as well but maybe not making it that dark visually but conceptually, there's like a darkness to it. But then there's something about it to, you know, and talking about people and saying that, you know, a lot of the people in, in these pictures have moved on or passed on. It's like that cycle of life thing, you know, it's like we're all moving through that in a way too. So it, it just becomes about, you know, our our existence in a way. And it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a big a big thought, but I think that's where, you know, that's some of the ideas and feelings live in this work, you know, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, you know, I've seen those films and uh, the different iterations of them. And uh, I just think, you know, what you were talking before about when, you, when you're showing a document of the experience on video, it's different than just seeing the still work. You know, the making of often takes away from the, uh, the mystique or, of it and uh, the, the meaning of the work, but the, it shows the humility of the work as well and the the people might, you know, might smile as opposed to in the photograph, they're not smiling. <laughs> but, uh, but I definitely, uh, I definitely, you know, I wish I could uh, have, I, I do have filmmakers that film when I'm working, but, you know, they're not, uh, I don't want to put my filmmakers down, but, you know, it's not like 
you know, Spielberg coming in and uh, right. taking over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I have never really kind of captured what I what I think could be captured. Uh, but I try. I try my best with my videos, but uh, I think the photographs are where, it, where, where it's at for me. Yeah, I mean, it's always nice to see the process and, you know, it's insightful, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's really the image. And there is a mystique in it too, you know. I think even when you share some of the process, you know, someone once asked me, um, it was an interview recently where they asked me if, you know, doing all these podcasts, if you feel like it kills some of the mystique of artists and the way they work in the studio. And I said, not really, because, you know, we all kind of have a working method or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think the work holds the mystique, no matter how much someone tells you about it in a way. It's that, like you're saying, the still image, like the thing that you're left with, there's still like some magic in that that you just can't define or put your finger on you know it's like a song you can talk about the lyrics all you want like you know this is what i was feeling or whatever but when you hear the song it has its own kind of magic that it, it you can't spoil it it just is it, a creative thing is what it is and it holds something well hopefully yeah definitely hopefully ideally yes. yeah <laughs> i it's interesting that a lot of the works that if you were to google my name and click on images a lot of the the works are not mine there uh, of art press photographers or press photographers that are at a distance at the side. So the image doesn't look that great. And uh, very rarely do I see a work and I'm like, oh man, they got a, they did better than I did. But, uh, <laughs> but usually, but usually uh, there's a lot of works out there that are not mine because see the, the issue I have is that when you're working in public space, you, Sometimes it's very difficult to 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 uh, work in public space because when you're working with everyday people and you're sort of asking the city to participate, word gets out there that you're doing actually doing the work, and there'll be different entities that are interested in documenting the right. work besides yourself, uh, whether it's news or 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 editorial or so. In, if I didn't, if we didn't give people an area to work and to document it, these are on the larger works. Uh, what would happen is they would end up being in all the lots of the windows and lots of the balconies of the photographs, and they would sort of everyone would just it would be a free for all of photographers on rooftops and uh, trying to shoot back at me, and then they would all. It's so interesting. And so now what we did is we sort of give people an area to be and then document the work. And that's how I sort of often fail in public because images are out there that are not that great, but I can't help it. And um, also mistakes that I make are are prevalent and I'm working in public. I really love not working in public. Yeah. I wish I could, you know, but... Uh, Maybe in the metaverse, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, so but there's also a gift to wanting for people or wanting to document it. Imagine if no one wanted to come and experience this this beautiful moment, and uh, right. that would be like, hmm. Well, am I really activating a public space how it should be activated? Am I really pushing the buttons of uh, people's perception perception of the body and and in a way 
freeing it up from the idea of a pornographic or cartoon state. And so, so uh, I'm lucky and I'm unlucky, but in the end, I'm lucky. It's a first world art problem. It's like, it's like, um, imagine if you recorded your records out in public and people could just come up and record some of the audio and release it. And you're like, no, no, that's not what it's supposed to sound like. You, you know, the, the recording is going to be right. what it's supposed to sound like. But then if you have all these people, like, you know, when the Beatles played that rooftop show and people were filming from other rooftops and I'm sure people were trying to like get a recording of some, you know, it you're, you're blessed in a way that people are wanting to pay attention to you and they're interested in it. But at the same time, you want your your creative work to go out into the world the way you want it to go out in the world. So it's kind of a conflicting thing, you know? Right. Definitely. But I mean, you know, if people, if nowadays, if you play Madison square gardens and you know, people are going to bring their phone and record like shitty audio of it. And there are bad films that they put up online where you can't hear anything. because the sound blows out the speakers on the iPhone. You know what I mean? But yeah, you're like, wait, that's not what it sounds like. We're good live. I swear. But that's the whole thing. That's why you go to the live show. You know what I mean? That's why you pick up the record or you go to, the museum to see the print and you you know you you want to still have that one-on-one experience of what the artist is or musician is trying to do oh definitely i think i love when my works are on a wall they're just so beautiful to me and uh and my family love loves them my kids love them my my youngest kid he's 14 and recently said dad can i hang one of your works in my room and I was like are you sure and uh you know because he has friends coming over and uh, and he did and it was one where which was I would think acceptable but most of my works are acceptable (laughs) but but uh and uh yeah it's such a it it's really different although I do love the illuminated light phone uh iPhone because I have such a I'm so enamored by the my past keychain viewers that I love the backlit image, image and uh, but I'm really confident about my future because if anything happened where I couldn't do these works anymore live, I feel I have a body of work that hasn't even been touched. People don't even know what I have, uh, and uh, a lot of what I have I haven't shown. So I'm excited to uh, slow down a little bit and exhibit works. And uh, my my wife would be happy to uh, hear that as uh, she would like me not to travel so much. Yeah, uh, that's a I mean that's a dad win though on the fourteen year old wanting to hang the print. Imagine like if you were George Carlin and your kid wanted to play your like tape comedy tapes for his friends. That might be more risky. Definitely, <laughs> my wife paints <laughs> my wife paints nudes, and we came home maybe the, a sitter was over and before. And uh, we came home to discover all of uh, the private areas on my wife's paintings covered with post-its <laughs> by the kids. <laughs> the censors got to you? <laughs> got to her. Yeah, definitely. And uh, But I think we've got gotten past that. I don't keep my photographs in the, our main, in the house, which is right next to my studio, yeah. because I don't want to you know, overwhelm. I don't. I, I more love my work, my wife's work, so we hang her works all there, and I have a few works hanging in my studio. Yeah, but yeah, but I get it too. You know, as an artist, um, when your kids are growing up, it is weird. Like it's kind of a weird occupation 
You know what I mean? It's not, I mean, for a kid, you know, they're like, oh yeah, my parents do this. You know what I mean? Or like, this is the stuff they, my wife is in fashion, so it's way cooler for my son to be, you know, what she does and like get those clothes. But for, for me, for a little while, I'm sure it was a little strange, but I think now he gets it, you know? Yeah. You know, sometimes living, uh, upstate, uh, in a mom and pop's town, uh, so I live in Suffern and, uh, that it feels like it could be Mississippi, you know, as far Southern as... Southern is... That's a, I thought that was an interesting place for you to settle. But but you were born in Orange County, right? I was born in uh, Sullivan County. Uh, I was born in Orange County in Middletown, New York, but I was brought that's up... That's not far. Yeah, I was brought up in a town called South Fallsburg. So why and, Southern? Well, uh, we were looking to move... We lived in uh, Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. I lived with my wife, and we lived in the city for 15 years. And we just, Nyack was too expensive at the time, you know, in yeah. around 2000, early 2000s. Uh, and uh, just found this mom and pop's town, reminded me of like Red Hook in a way, but with nothing artistic, no cultural vibe here. You got some and trains it, though. Right. It was uh, 57 minutes to get, <laughs> to get into the city by train. And I was like, there's a secret train that goes through that leaves New York, goes through New Jersey, express, and ends up in New York. So I could be sort of a New York artist and you know keep the travel time low. And I I thought this was fascinating. So every interview I would do, uh, I would start talking and promoting the town and trying to get artists to learn about this train and to get artists to move to Suffern as houses were under three hundred thousand. And just no one ever moved. <laughs> just no one ever came. <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. No. Well, they have a good. Uh, they have good sports, I believe. Wasn't isn't Victor Cruz from Suffern? Isn't he like the one of the most famous people from Suffern? Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not Maybe sure. That's Ramsey. I don't know. But yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of sports in that area. That's for sure. Yeah, a lot of lot big hockey team. My uh, my oldest kid uh, does robotics. And, nice. at Suffern High School. So. She is the co-captain of the robotics team, and so she loves it. She loves the love being loves being up here and uh, up here, which is forty-five minutes north of the city. But uh, it's not far at all, you know. Yeah. As I told you, I used to make the Mawa trip like every weekend for you know decade and a half or something, which yeah. is very close. I think uh, Ryan uh, McGinley is from Ramsey, which is like five oh, minutes yeah. away. Yep. And you have Ramapo College there, which is a good college. It's oh, yeah. Close. The, I did a guest spot there once. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. The photography, the Department of Photography or Art, the uh, the uh, dean of that department, if there is a dean, uh, sold me my dark my darkroom equipment. Oh, nice. Uh, before he was uh, working there. So I was like, oh, I have all your equipment. Yeah, so... Uh, I live right south of the Harriman State Park, and so I do a lot of photographs now on in Harriman State Park without people knowing I'm actually doing them. And then I look, I photograph people on these uh, glacial rocks that look over uh, the superhighway, and so I still feel like I'm working with nature with sort of this. Uh, incredible rush of uh, traffic and trucks going past and now my 
my challenge is, is to catch a truck that has uh, different uh, signage on the trucks as they pass, whether it's, <laughs> you know, whether it's Amazon or McDonald's. And yeah, it's, that's a, it's a really interesting area. There's so many, you know, when you go there a lot, you start to find these little quirks or like little interesting things like like the i the little town of tuxedo to me was really intriguing for a while it just seemed like a very strange and interesting place yeah tux tuxedo is amazing because i i think what what makes it incredible is that you know besides that it's you know i idyllic it's it's there's this lake and but the lake is uh has the is surrounded by sort of a mountainous area so it's like a lake in a valley and so it feels very much like uh, switzerland and uh, i think that's the allure of that uh of that town is that that lakes that's sort of in this crevice of a it's it's quite beautiful i was there once i, I was at a uh a fundraiser for hillary clinton and uh that was my one time there but but it's, it's gated, right? Like the the majority of the nicer homes, like it's a gated area. Right. It's a gated community. Um, a, an inventor and scientist from from World War II sort of got a lot of uh, Jews out of uh, Europe, having them work in his uh, factory, and that factory is still around, but not working. But it's owned now by a developer, and so there's a, a lot of history of. Ex- you know, harboring escaped uh, World War II uh, victims. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. And did you ever go to Mount Fuji? That place is it's a little, it's an oddity. Yes, we of course Mount Fuji. <laughs> it's a, kind of sort of Benihana where they cook the the food yeah. in front of you, but it's on top of a mountain overlooking Suffern. Yeah. and there used to be motels attached to it, and those motels were part of MoMA's uh, MoMA exhibition in the 50s oh i didn't know that yeah the whole complex was uh based on uh ex- exhibition at Mo- museum of modern art and uh they brought over uh, original uh japanese architecture and turned one of the the huge building into this restaurant but there were also uh little cabins overlooking suffering that were part of the exhibition that's so cool. It's such a strange, like in the middle of a hill in the middle, you know, you would just never, and when you drive by it now, you're just like, there's like a Japanese building up there with a little Jap- Japanese flag. And you're like, what? you know, if you didn't know, it'd be like, what the hell is that place? Yeah. It's really def- interesting. Yeah. It's a great, and they just redesigned the uh, lounge area, which is, it's nice. So you can, you know, have a real wonderful uh, Japanese meal in an old sort of, Japanese massive structure on top of yeah. a mountain. Yeah, yeah. So random. Well, yeah. So that environment seems to be, you know, not. I mean, I, I'm con- we contemplate moving out to Penn or having a place out in the Poconos because I teach at Penn State, and you know, the idea of being outside the city, I think, as years go by, of having that escape. Well, and during COVID too was rough. You know, being stuck in the city all the time. It must have been really nice to have that space and air to breathe. Yeah, it was. It's unbelievable to uh, to live outside the city and still have access to the city, especially with public transportation. It's one of those. I'm just very lucky, privileged yeah. to have that. But uh, you know, of course, I envy my friends that still live in the city. 
uh, I think I would make a lot more work, you know, uh, in the city. I, I'd be at a lot, you know, you anyone you run into is someone that could possibly help you out in some way, either with a prop or a location or exhibition. It's like I've completely, sometimes I feel like I've, uh, you know, I always tell my kids, you know, I could, they, I could have been a famous artist. And they say, Dad, you are famous. I said, no, no, I'm well known. I could have been famous. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I gave it up. <laughs> being a famous artist, too, is funny because you could be the most famous artist and you're still just, as my sister-in-law likes to say, a relatively known artist. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, It's not like you walk down the street and people mob you or anything, which is, God, it's a blessing. Like, who would want to deal with that? You know? Right, yeah. No, but I'm... I'm totally you know they they being an art there's there's only one i always think there's only one famous artist and that was warhol i don't think that's you know that's the only one the the next the next one who knows when that'll come um so uh yeah so just uh living out of the city and uh is uh a gift and it's also a hindrance uh i'm a people person so i go a little stir crazy up here and uh, even though i'm not too far away from the city i try to go into nature and really enjoy photographing in nature but i'm i can't really i mean you can't really take a bad photograph in nature (laughs) (laughs) it does the work for you right Right, exactly and when i see nudes in nature wherever it is i'm like you know just there's no there's no bad you know even when you put a person in you know so I, i try to stay away from just nature and nature and when i do i feel that the person takes over the city so the bodies become the city right and there's this electric fleshy feel to the bodies that feel like new york city or brooklyn and never to me feels like nature and nature um especially in color yeah and uh no, i agree with that it's yeah. when you see a nude in nature you just you, it just doesn't feel even though it feels right like that's the way we would be in nature you know what i mean it just right. feels like we're a little we we kind of we've evolved to separate ourselves from nature in a way. And it just looks a little awkward nowadays. Yeah. And it looks very self-aware. I'm doing a, I'm doing a, I, I'm only doing, I think one group work this year. Uh, Often I do two, maybe three, but lately it's been difficult because of COVID and commissions. And so uh, I'm doing one that's self-produced in, in Glen Wild, uh, New York and uh, a collaboration with Phil Bueller and it's it's really it's in nature but I'm trying to you know do one last work with masks sort of like a finale you know, yeah. wishing the the pandemic away right. so the props are black black masks uh, apples and uh, there's a, a an area where people can put mud on their bodies, and uh, and there's a river nearby that people can take the mud off, and sort of creating this uh, end of utopia or beginning or beginning of you uh, continued uh, re- resurgence of uh, 
a uh, a state of uh, 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 just like a just a rebellion against uh, constriction. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Well, uh, so w- one one thing that I'd like to touch on is uh, music. I'd be shocked if music wasn't a part of your life, but maybe not. You know, I'm a I'm a uh, I'm really a '90s music person. That works. Yeah. The John Spencer Blues Explosion. Whoa, uh, John Spencer. I haven't thought of that in a little bit. Yeah. He was, uh, he was uh, when my band was on tour, uh, Orange got a lot of play in the van. You know, it was just like right. kick you in the ass and get you moving music, you know? So right. good. So you can imagine me, you know, driving, taking a cab to a location in the city in the 90s and or early 2000s and just blaring that and uh, just really getting waking up you know you got to wake up if you're up at 3 a.m and you're starting to work at 5 a.m and uh my favorite song on that album is very rare very rare oh man my my throat is very rare let me take a i like full grown oh yeah just dirty enough you know to get you to get you through the day (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, just uh, Beastie Boys, REM, uh, Silver Jews, Pavement, you know, Spinanes, just nineties, oh, nineties guy. I, I listened to a so lot. You of- probably you probably saw Pavement live, right? Yeah, I saw Pavement live. That was so good. Helmet. Uh, who else? Uh, I saw Nirvana live when they came to New York. Yeah. So. Uh, and oh, uh, man, that's right my wheel that's like college that you just went through like my college right. life in that uh, playlist <laughs> sonic youth my kids are my kids are listening to all the music i listen to so oh, that's cool yeah built to spill remember those guys did you like guided by voices i went through a phase of those guys uh my wife did yeah 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 and those uh, were like the in the studio in like sophomore year of undergraduate school i think it was a lot of pavement a lot of that stuff but yeah that's cool your kids listen to that my my son it's just all rap i mean he is deep into it oh, okay yeah that's not happening here but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh i wish you know yeah i mean careful what you wish for it's funny because like growing up i remember my neighbor i must have been pretty young giving me a cassette tape and it was nwa on one side straight out of compton and the other side was the ghetto boys and i mean it was like oh my god like this was you know it was like seeing your first dirty magazine or something i don't know it was i had to hide it from my parents and i would like listen to it i didn't even have headphones so i had a tape cassette player and i would like listen to it quietly and it was a contraband but you know nowadays the stuff you can get your hands on i mean you can hear anything at, at any time you can't stop it you know what i mean it's, it would be like plugging holes in a wall was like a, a dam that broke you know definitely uh, i remember i got called from the, the new york times because they wanted to run a photo of mine but i wasn't in town and i asked why and they said because method man in a uh, interview said i was his favorite artist at the nice. time at the oh. time so and listen that you just got enough street cred for right. your whole life with that <laughs> yeah i was really into the beastie boys uh, adam yock was would come to my exhibitions and nice. uh i played basketball with him and ad rock and 
little little fact is Adrock broke my rib while playing basketball with me. I would imagine he balls hard. Oh He's my a God. New Yorker. Unbelievable. I mean, he doesn't, he didn't know I was there. You know, he didn't, he didn't know me, but Adrock did, but I mean, but Adam did, but uh, I'm never, if I ever run into him, I'm going to tell him he, he definitely took me down for at least a month. <laughs> did you, uh, did you get that book of theirs? Yeah. It was really good. I mean, I grew up, I, I had a giant poster of License to Ill on my, um, on my bedroom wall. And I remember, you know, selective memory of being a kid, but I remember learning the lyrics to Paul Revere, like just playing it over and over until I had every cadence, like every word spot on, you know, much to my parents' chagrin. But um, but yeah, Beastie Boys were huge. And you know, they one thing I think the Beastie Boys did for a lot of my generation too was, you know, they started out as a punk band and then they, you know, they fused so much stuff together and and broke those lines that was you know that was kind of important to be able to like you know cross those lines it was just good good i I liked i i was starting to read the book but uh then someone told me that i should listen to it on audio because he had all these actors they had all these actors reading the parts in the book uh you know from john c Riley to uh steve buscemi yeah so it's like just Rosie Perez, just really interesting, cool people reading nice. uh, their story and, as opposed to them. And so that was fun. And then you can just look at the pictures and that was great yeah, as well. Great, great photos. I I'd interviewed Paul Natkin who did that famous photo of them with the beer. Like, Oh, really? When the license to ill days. Yeah, and he was talking about how <laughs> he asked them to be careful around the camera equipment and that just did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm friendly. I was friendly with one of their photographers, Ricky Powell. And um, I am friendly with uh, Glenn Friedman mm-hmm. who photographed, uh, I think he photographed the cover of License to Ill, the black and white cover. Yeah. No, no. I'm not sure if that, I don't know if it was. Ill uh, Communication? No, he didn't do Ill Communication. It was the black and white one after Paul's boutique. Check your head. Yeah. He did check your head, Glenn Friedman. Great, That's great photographer. Photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those videos were good too. You know, I saw them live at Lollapalooza and they were next to last and they just killed it. I mean, the place went nuts. And then Billy Corrigan came up afterwards. You could tell he was pissed off because the place erupted for Beastie Boys. And like he had to follow that with Smashing Pumpkins. And Smashing Pumpkins is a great band, but I mean, not, you know, that's like. I don't know. Yeah. That's like Mitch Hedberg going up after like Richard Pryor or something. And it's not like the, the, the dynamic you want to shift to after the Beastie Boys. So, But they were so good live. That's true. Yeah. A lot of energy. When you're, I guess when you work, you can't really listen to music. Or, or do you? In, when I first started my works in New York, uh, a friend, uh, I would have some uh, Hungarian and, and African music playing live on the street uh, with musicians while nice. the people would undress, run yeah. into position. Then they would stop so I could uh, people could hear me. And then as they would run back and put on their clothes, they would play. And we did that maybe uh, once a year for four or five years or twice a year. And that was really special. Uh, How did you come to Hungarian music? Uh, Raul Rothblatt, 
who's a musician, uh-huh. would gather these African and Hungarian musicians to play at my shoots. And I would, cool. you know, he said, I heard him playing and, and he was a friend of mine. And I said, hey, you know, something live could happen here because it, it just seemed, you know, it seemed like every, I just wanted to, I, maybe I didn't feel that satisfied that people were just coming for a photograph to pose for me i felt like that wasn't enough them a little yeah there <laughs> you go and so uh and i i actually have one of those uh videos posted right now on my instagram of uh that starts out that you can hear the music and see the musicians sort of playing in the background it's a work that i did it's my second group work i ever did which took place on uh, broadway and spring street Nice. In 1995. Well, no history in that area. <laughs> That's like a, uh, that must have been pretty a pretty great place to shoot. Yeah, it was totally empty. Uh, I think you could see canal jeans in the background. Nice. And, uh, it, you know, again, in the 90s, before the, you know, before you had all these uh structures and cement blocks and metal barriers because of terrorism and uh the streets were bare and there was this flowing of uh the streets onto the sidewalk uninterrupted by protective terrorist pots of plants (laughs) you know it just uh, it was a different landscape the city and the streets were empty at sunrise maybe they still are empty i'm there's a photographer that shoots nudes on the streets, and I'm always asking him to to come with him so I could watch him. And right. he doesn't know that I'm asking him because I want to get my guts up again. You know, just like <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I just want to kind of pull some of that, you know, brave energy from him to uh, go back into the city and do some early morning individual portraits, but. Uh, so he ha- he thinks I'm just trying joking with him, but I actually just want to just like steal some of his mojo. Yeah. Now you'd have to put him on city bikes or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, like there's no, there's no, there, now everything's got stuff. Just in yeah. general. Everything's got a layer of stuff on it. That's what's beautiful about like, you know, those old pictures too of the rawness of it. It's just how... Like, if you have ever seen photos of, like, Judd's studio, like, that corner, that area back in those days, it was just, I mean, the rawness of it. Now there's just stuff everywhere. You know, there's, yeah. like, a booth where, I don't know, there's a kiosk where you can download, you know, Yelp reviews or something. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, definitely the landscape has, has changed. And uh, I have a my book, uh, Reaction Zone, has all those early New York works in them. And my wife designed that. That's on my uh, website. Nice. If, if people are interested in yeah, for seeing sure. those, you have two right on that are right it, that are listed on your site. Yeah, those those two books, uh, Participant and Reaction Zone, they're both self published. Nice. And Kristen, my wife, designed them. She's a graphic designer, and she's designed all my small invitations that I've ever handed out on the streets. And uh, yeah, so I love self publishing. Um, it's not great, really. right? Like holding a book. It's just, it's so nice. Yeah, it's great doing yourself. I know there's small publishers and it's important to support them, but there's something real special about, you know, doing something yourself. And so I, f- I fell in love with that. Maybe it's was 
you know, not not related to his work, but sort of the Larry Clark, uh, yeah. uh, you know, idea of publishing, do it yourself. And um, I've stuck with that. I've been asked by every large publisher, not every, obviously, but the largest of the large to do, to do books. But I just love putting it out myself and just doing, not really advertising them. <laughs> you get to do your thing, you know. It's yeah. nice, too, having a partner that you can work with, which is nice. I mean, my wife dresses me, so. <laughs> I can see. That's a beautiful black American oh, yeah. apparel t-shirt. So not today. She went to work early. Normally, I'd be wearing <laughs> oh, okay. a really fancy suit. Oh, podcasts. yeah. <laughs> right. uh, I, don't, I don't buy clothing because I want all that extra, all that money I don't, I don't want to be wasted on me. So, I only wear black. I buy, I buy Chrissy the clothing that I, you know, all, you know, any... So I don't have to, I don't really think about myself too much. Yeah, I did. I don't, I try not. I mean, I think I would imagine that you feel this way too sometimes. When you have a kid, you kind of stop really, you, you want to give them stuff or you're more yeah. worried about what they're doing. And I think it it deflects a little bit. Because sometimes my dad will be like, why don't you buy, you know, he'll see something. He's really into clothes. He'll be like, why don't you get that? And I'm like, I don't, I don't need that. You can, You why don't you get something? You know, I just feel like, you do it. And he's like, well, you're still allowed to wear something nice. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing's happening to me, Brian. You know, it's like, you know, when Kristen, you know, she's friendly with this designer, Mara Hoffman, and she wants mm-hmm. this jumpsuit. And I'm like, hmm, I guess I'll not be getting that, you know, pair of shoes I want. <laughs> right. So, so um, yeah, so it definitely takes sacrifices, you know, with clothing. And so I just... I t- I go so far to just often only wear black because of that. <laughs> it's timeless. It works. It always works. So do you have what do you um what can you share other than the two books which they can find on your website? How else can people sort of see what you're up to? I mean you're you're like you said you're on Instagram, you're keeping posted on that. Um do you have anything coming up or any other things that you know you want to share with people? I just have that, uh, I'm not sure if this podcast will come out before that, but uh, June 25th, I have a work in upstate New York, and mm-hmm. I'll post about that soon. But mostly I'm working on two, a, a new book. Uh, I, with, I traveled with my wife in a van in 25 years ago to every state in the country, photographing a nude in every state, and uh the project was called Naked States. And this is before all the Instagram sites called, you know, all the van sites. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and she wasn't my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. And we traveled uh, maybe spending three or five days in each state and uh, finding people to participate, whether it was handing out flyers for small group shots that we made at Kinko's or, or just uh, showing people a box of photos, five by seven size uh, on the street or in a, in a, in a cafe and asking them, would they want to meet us the next morning to be in one of my photographs based on the works that I would show them. And so we, it was a traveling art project uh, in the spirit of uh, uh that paint that artist who uh, photographs um, gas stations, uh, Ed Ruscha. Yeah, 
uh, and sort of adding a little bit of uh, Diane Arbus and uh, and what nude photographer <laughs> back then uh, there weren't that many uh, people just doing specifically nudes all the time um, but uh, just getting all these influences and wanting wanting to work with the body but yet be a traveling artist uh, I was always fascinated uh, with Robert Frank's uh, Guggenheim grant where he photographed in I think it was either 38 states or 48 states and uh, in his book um, his well-known book the American yeah the Americans yeah uh, and so I'm working on a, a small book uh, for that project with Kristen, and she's going to design it again. And uh, so it's 25 years old, but I still think the works are good, and it's going to be small, like this size. Oh, nice. And, it's a good... Uh, yeah, something more like a, a pocket-sized book that you can uh, hold in one hand, but still printed really beautifully. Sounds great. Yeah, you know, driving across the country was huge for me. You know, being in a band and going on tour and seeing the country that way. I feel like you don't know the country until you drive across the country, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I was always thinking, like, oh, I'm so jealous of bands that get to, like, tour. Why can't, like, an artist tour and have right? a schedule? And, and so tour. that's... <laughs> so you're one of the reasons, my jealousy of you, that got us to uh, purchase a a used van and and head off and Kristen actually did a watercolors along the way too so i think she has nice. 50 watercolors but so they're beautiful it's a great idea i look forward to it thank you well uh it was great to talk thanks so much for doing it and you know the work's amazing obviously it's like singular and important and really great work so and it's cool to uh to be able to talk to you and it's nice to discover your work, Brian. It's really beautiful. And uh, Thank you. it's just uh, apocalyptic right now, at least your last show. So it's <laughs> yeah, pretty it's intense. Always, always been kind of that way. Yeah. <laughs> Can't shake that for some reason. Yeah, just great work. And uh, Thanks. really nice to meet you. Thanks. Nice to meet you, too. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself. You can find more images from the podcast on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. You can find more on my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Many thanks to Weird Inside for the music and Michael Lovett for the introduction. Thanks to Spencer for taking the time to talk to me. Check out his work. I'm sure you've all seen it. It's epic. It's museums and you've seen it um a great conversation a really cool guy so um look deeper into spencer's work and many thanks to him thanks to golden paints for the sponsorship making it happen in the studio materials wise make sure you check out goldenpaints.com and many thanks to fulcrum for keeping me awake fulcrum coffee roasters check out their subscriptions and if you want to support the podcast right now, a great way to do it is to go online and get Why I Make Art, the Sound Division podcast book. 25 bucks, a thick book filled with like great artists, interesting quotes, guest book drawings, color images, features on 30 different artists from the podcast, 
over the first few years. Uh, you can get it at Altelier Editions website, art book, and you can get it on Amazon, or Barnes & Noble, or wherever else. But if you go to the soundofvisionpodcast.com website, there's links to it. So that would really help support it. Or you can go onto iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps. Or tell a friend. Share the podcast with someone you know. Uh, some great artists coming up. Really exciting people that I'm looking forward to talking to. And I'm looking forward to you hearing from. <laughs>